Fabulous with Vibs and Vicky, the ThinkShift podcast for professionals who aspire to be fabulous leaders, those who not only succeed, but also purposefully seek to reinvent the world. Welcome to the Be Fabulous podcast, part of our special series on race, black, brown, and white. In this episode, we'll be taking the perspective of white. So two episodes ago, you heard the perspectives of black from Francesca. You heard from me in the last one on brown. And this time we put Vicky in the mastermind hot seat. And uh, we look at this from the perspective of white. Beyond that, I don't really have too much to say in terms of setting this up, but we will be talking to Vicky about some of her childhood beliefs and biases, how that's manifested itself into her professional beliefs and biases, and then what she sees from a societal point of view through the lens of white. Without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Francesca, who's going to actually be the key host and interviewer for Vicky, with me piling on for good measure as and when. Over to you, Francesca. <laughs> awesome. I love it. I love it. And it's so exciting to actually be hearing from Vicky today because I've known Vicky for a little over a year now, and we formed this special bond. Um, you know, when we text each other, it's more like, hey, how's it going? And hello, love. How are you? So we formed that really special bond that um, it's really exciting to get to know Vicky more at a deeper level now. So Vicky, um, it, it's awesome. Let me ask you first, tell us a little bit about your childhood, where that occurred. How was it? Was it fabulous, just like you? Can you share some of those insights with us today? Ah, oh, and thank you, Francesca, and right back at you. I feel so fortunate to have so much professional respect, personal respect, and just so blessed to have you as part of my life and now Vips' life as well. Uh, it just feels like this natural fit. And so it's just a joy. Yeah, so uh, for me, I, um, I was born in South Africa. So for those of you listening from Los Angeles, where I am right now, this is my best Valley Girl impression. Uh, but I was, uh, I was born in uh, Johannesburg in South Africa uh, in the 70s. Uh, under the apartheid era, and my mom's parents were German Jews that escaped to South Africa before the war and reinvented themselves as French Christians. Um, and my dad's heritage is is Scottish. And so I grew up in a. My dad worked for the Johannesburg City Council. Uh, my mom was pretty much a stay-at-home mom. She did you know, odd jobs as as clerks of churches and um, secretaries, assistants, that kind of thing. Um, but she really, her focus was mostly me and my, my sister. I have a sister that's a year younger than me. And, you know, when I say my background is fabulous, I wouldn't say fabulous in the way I describe it, but I would say it was very um, supportive, uh, very happy, very grounded, and exactly what I needed at the time. Fabulous for me was something that I evolved into uh, as more of as a teenager when I realized that... Um, you know, my dad is a, a civil servant, I suppose, for want of a better word. He, he, he made it ends meet, but there definitely wasn't any leftovers at the end of the month. I remember my sister and I, when we went shopping once a month with my mom to the, the hypermarket we had in South Africa, these giant stalls, which are a little bit like, I suppose, like Costco here in the U.S. 
and we'd get a jar of Nutella. It would have to last us the whole month, you know, be that sort of set up. And my mom would have to make our own yogurt because we couldn't afford to buy yogurt. But it felt like we lived a very luxurious and, and wealthy life because we were the small minority, the five million, one of the five million whites with uh, uh, 40 million blacks and coloreds and Indians. And as part of that small minority, um, we, we were a lot more privileged. So that meant we had somebody um, who cleaned our house who was black. We had somebody who did our garden who was black. So even though from a cost of living and a standards perspective, if, if I'd grown up in the UK or the US, uh, I would be very sort of low to middle class. In South Africa terms, we were, we were wealthy. Uh, so you, you, you pulled up a few experiences there of having a cleaner and, uh, and a housekeeper. I think you said housekeeper, right? Um, my question to you is, so how, how did that shape your own childhood biases on race? Like, how, how did you think of people of different color? Like, I mean, what, what went through your head as a 14, 15, 16 year old in terms of the life you were living and just what you thought about people of different color? Yeah, you know, uh, so South Africa was designed, I was learning this from my, my dad on the weekend. So Francesca and I were diving into this uh, last week. And, you know, apartheid really comes from the Dutch word of, of, of apart, being separated, and then the height, which is hood. And um, the, the British and the Dutch, when they came to uh, South Africa on their routes to the Far East to get spices, um, they found the, the locals and they wanted to keep them separated. So the goal initially was separation. It wasn't actually meant to be sort of a subjugation and a slavery. It was meant to be more of a separation, creating actual communities and areas that were very distinct. So the goal wasn't to integrate at all. Um, as it turned out, because of the way the economics worked, because the education was really skewed. So, it was, you know, there were, there actually were, there was a black university, which I didn't realize, and some schools and things, but it was very limited. So the majority didn't have access to that. So Nelson Mandela obviously graduated from one of these these institutions and, and th there was access to these things, but it was a small minority of those that were of color that had access to them. The, minor the minority of the whites really controlled that, that economic flavor. Um, so for, for me growing up, you know, I went to a whites-only school, but I didn't actually meet other whites of the Dutch origin. I never met an Afrikaans-speaking white South African until I went to London. So not only was I segregated from blacks and Indians and colors, you literally lived in this tiny little bubble, your suburb and the little areas around you. Mine was very Jewish, so I know the Jewish culture inside and out, um, but that was just the school and the world I lived in, even though I'm not Jewish. And... Um, so there was this complete segregation. But what I do remember feeling is it, it just didn't feel right to have somebody in our house cleaning. We had living quarters at the back of our house where um, our, our cleaner and our gardeners stayed because they, they didn't have much. They would stay on our property. But there was always somebody in the house that didn't feel like the family and for good reason. And it always felt a little odd to have somebody in the house as much as there were services being provided. Even as a young kid, it just didn't feel like a... Uh, a win-win. Something about it just felt off to me. And I was never very comfortable with the whole situation uh, to start with. You know, I loved all the different people in our lives. We had a richness of that, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a sharing of, of knowledge or understanding. It was very transactional. And some of it was to, was to do with the language. There wasn't a great um, common language that we spoke. Um, so there was language challenges, but some of it was probably even just a, a lack of curiosity or wanting to know. It was a little bit like, you know, cook us some food and clean the house and then, you know, stay separate mm. if I, you know, have to be honest. As opposed to let's all sit around the family dinner table and eat together. And not that food wasn't shared, but it wasn't shared in a communal or family way. It was, 
there was, you know, our, our maid, our housekeeper, cooking for us, but then eating separately, you know, down in her living quarters, which were definitely not as nice as our house, no question about it. So, Vicky, let me ask you, what was your first real exposure to blacks at the same level, not necessarily professionally, but just as friends? And how did that even feel? So I, I left South Africa pretty early on, you know, once I finished studying university. Um, uh, you know, at, at the time and for many years, I described it that I love the history and the architecture of Europe, which I do. You know, I've got these German ancestries and Scottish ancestries and South Africa, like the US, is, is pretty young. So for me, the architecture of Europe was, was just so gorgeous. Um, and also, I'm a highly ambitious soul. So being on some dot point, I was working at IBM at the time, was just not very appealing. You know, I wanted to be at the hub. London was the hub of a lot of economic um, activity. I wanted to be there. So I convinced myself that that was the reason I was leaving South Africa. But if I have to be really honest, it, it was because deep down, I just didn't feel like a South African, whatever that South African feeling meant. You know, I, I didn't acknowledge or want to be known as South African um, for many, many years as I lived in the UK. There was a shame associated to it. It, mm. it all just felt... It's, very unequal, unfair, unjust. I'm part of it in some way because I'm a lucky one with the white skin. I don't know what to make of it because I'm still quite young. Are my parents to blame? Well, no, they try to do the best that they could do with their environment. You know, they created, my dad shares his pension with um, the gardener. You know, they, they did the best they can in that environment. But something about it didn't sit well with me. And, and also from the time I was in, um, in primary school, um, I guess, what is that here in the U.S., Phipps? Um, early years or primary? Early years. Yeah, early years or primary. Um, we would have our house broken into time and time again. I'd come home from school and our house would be cleaned out. Uh, and then, you know, we stopped being able to walk home from school because it was dangerous. And then we had the wall and then we had the Rottweilers and then it's the gated communities. So, um, you know, to this day, certainly in Johannesburg, you know, my dad lives in a, in a gated estate and it... it you live with fight or flight. You know, you never show who's going to attack you the whole time. You never show if you're safe in your car, and it's, it's, it's insidious in the way it is. And I remember my first, you know, week in London. I'm like, ah, oh, I get to walk to the restaurants, and it was just this, this relief of this freedom of all these colours, this melting pot coming together. And, um, I don't know if this was the first, but one of our neighbours, um, in London was Jamaican, and. You know, we'd hang out at his very often and he'd come to ours and it was, I didn't really see the skin colour. It was only when my uncle and aunt came out from South Africa for a 4th of July barbecue because we used to celebrate them because Jim's American. It was kind of funny to have a 4th of July in England. The Brits would say it's because that colony left us, you know, it's a celebration of that. But, you know, my, my aunt, my aunt would say, you know, oh, look at Paul, who's our Jamaican neighbour and he was so dark skin. Don't his white teeth really sparkle? And I was like, oh. How could you say that? That's so embarrassing. <laughs> but for her, you know, having a black guy speak with a um, <laughs> a, a real uh, Cockney accent was something she'd never heard before. You know, she'd only heard Africans with a heavy accent, barely being able to speak English in a very sophisticated way. And here was this this guy giving it as good as anyone. And so I would probably say he was one of the first memories of really cool guy living next to us with just a different skin color. I, I got to share something like, you know, I, I had two, two, two people from Jamaica that were quite close to me. One was my driving instructor. He's the one I'll talk about. His name was Beresford. Oh, his name is Beresford. Um, 
Jamaican character from family from Kingston. But his English was so good. It was like mm-hmm. Idris Elba. <laughs> it was so good. And, and there, was, um, uh, there was something almost, it was almost like their English was better. You know, they played cricket better than the English did. They, they spoke English better than the English did. And there was a little bit of, you know, we've kind of, we've kind of degenerated in, in England <laughs> while you guys have maintained the standards. It's really interesting as you were saying that. I just, uh, I had flashbacks of Beresford. Um, yeah. So, you know, Vicky, when you, when you said that, like, it's very interesting because you mentioned, you talked about this kind of, I don't know, you, you didn't talk about being from South Africa when you were in London. Like it was maybe something not, wor- not worth talking about. Is that what you meant? Or was it because you were guilty about it? Or was it because you thought the people yeah. around you was like, well, she's from South Africa, she's obviously racist? Well, I'm beginning to 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 understand that that might be the perception. I hadn't had that thought at the time. Okay. Uh, I'm beginning to think that now because of the conversations that are happening around us, and I'm really realizing the need to to educate. Um, it was more the shame of this weird society that I'd grown up in that was highly unequal and feeling really helpless in it as one of the the small minorities who were able to benefit from the yeah. system by the nature of the color of my yeah. skin more than anything. As I say, my dad wasn't well off, you know, he didn't have a you know, fancy profession, but by the nature of this way the system was set up, we were the top 1%, uh, you know, probably even smaller than that, you know, the top point 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 one percent And it just felt very, um, yeah, at its core, at the cellular level, it just felt really, really unfair and unequal. Mm. And, and you feel helpless. Like you don't know what to do about that whole situation. And I think it's what's going on in the U.S. right now is this feeling of helplessness. It's like, okay, if we're white-skinned, what is it that we have to do? And, and what is it that we have to share? And, and, and do we have to give up anything? You just feel helpless because you, you don't understand. Because the scale of the problem is so big. You know, when, when the small minority is in charge, um, and in South Africa it became law, um, which is not helpful, but it was their way of, mm. of, of creating that, 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 that separation in those distinct neighborhoods, as it were, because a, you know, five million minority is not going to control the majority unless, it's, <laughs> unless something happens. You know, it was, I guess it was their way of, of making that happen. But over time, it meant that you know, black folks were not educated in the same way, did not have access to the same jobs, the same everything. And so when the government changed in 94 and, and Mandela took over, and the ANC party, there was this real belief that suddenly all black folks would be highly educated and have beautiful homes and live a great life. And as all of us know, things take time. And I was having this conversation with my sister this weekend and just like, but it's been 30 years. Like, how long is it going to take? And I was like, dude, it's going to take two, 300 years. You know, <laughs> these, these things don't take 10, 20, 30 years. You know, they take, they take a long, long time to get right. And that's what's hard to, to get your head around. Yeah, Vicky, it's actually really interesting when you talked about the shame of coming from that society where, I mean, I think you'll agree with me, any white South African, people just assume they're racist, period, right? <laughs> and rich. And so? rich. I'm, I'm learning that. Exactly. I'm learning exactly. that. Yeah, but, but so let me tell you something. When I was growing up in Nigeria during my you know, high school and what have you, the only thing I know about South Africa is um, apartheid, racism, white superiority, being do- blacks are being dominant. That's all 
Like, no. So anyone South African, in my mind, is racist. So you're saying now that that's probably not the case. There's probably more to you as an individual, some other whites as individuals. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Because I think what we're driving towards now is more of all whites have this white privilege, okay, that as a result of your skin color. It doesn't necessarily mean you are racist, but you do have the privilege because of the color of your skin. Do you agree? I totally agree. And, um, you know, this, this struck me most when I uh, was in, in, in London and having to get visas to travel all over Europe because I was on a South African passport. And I noticed straight away, even as a young 20-something-year-old sitting in these embassies, just looking around and thinking, I'm so lucky to have this milky white skin and to look European and blend in with these Brits and other Europeans. I could tell. You know, there was no, nothing no one said to me that made me feel that. I could just tell. Because you watch everybody. You know, those are the days when you could actually sit with people in another room. <laughs> it feels like a lifetime ago that we could do that. But you all... You all um, Makes me think, what are they doing with visas these days? Maybe they've gone remote too. Well, that would be a joy. But you would, you would clump together in this room with all sorts of nationalities and characters. You'd wait for hours. You get to watch all the different interactions. And one of my favorite sports, my husband always said if it was an Olympic sport, I would get the gold medal is, is watching. You know, I just love to watch humans and, and what they do and, and how they interact. So you'd watch all of this and you'd be like, oh, it's different for me. For some reason, it's different for me. And I'm pretty sure it has to do with the color of my skin. And I started to notice that. And so, sure, they're racists of every color. I think, you know, they're, they're white racists, they're black racists, they're brown racists to each other, to the other nationalities. There's no question. But to me, those are easier to spot. You know, we can all spot racist behaviors. And I would hope, I don't know this for a fact, but I would hope that they would be a smaller uh, minority. But I think what is a much more important conversation, and not that that's not important, is this nature of white privilege. Because, you know, Francesca, you were sharing about how your name could be Italian, Francesca Fajimi, that could be Japanese. You get through sourcing, you get through screening, you get through telephone interviews. But sometimes when you turn up for the job, you can see the eyes glaze over. You know, you know it's done because they now see the color of your skin. And and it's, it's that that is so um, insidious when we think about white privilege. And to me, that's a very, very powerful conversation to explore, which are where all the examples and the instances of white privilege that we may or may not be aware of. And I was having this discussion with my dad and sister on Sunday, and they, had, they hadn't thought about it in that way as well. Because you feel so guilty and shamed, you don't want to think about it at all. So it's like, this is topic, it's just like, don't go there, I'm ashamed, let's not talk about it. Um, I don't feel like a racist. I'm doing whatever I can in this sort of hopeless society to try and be a good human. But we don't really understand that until we lean in and are willing to have these conversations and learn the nuances of, oh, I am treated differently. You're going to love this one. Um, I don't know if you remember Shri, Shrikanth, I think his name was. I know, I remember uh, him. Anderson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember him. Well, we used to... We used to, we used to um, we used to fly into to, uh, Val Turin in the French Alps first weekend in December to go skiing. We're all consultants, so it was just, you know, it was get away for a weekend. It was the, the cheapest weekend to go skiing in the French Alps. And I would fly into to Geneva because the, the Swiss have a, a granny way of patrolling, is what I call it, where um, one of my friends from Germany was out in the streets. One of the old ladies came up to him and was like, you don't belong here. Wear your papers. So they don't have to check papers at the border because the little old ladies will, 
we'll turn you over. And there was a really classic case of a Mossad operation being bust by the little old ladies. People coming in and out of the doors and this woman calling up. And, you know. So I would, I would fly into Geneva, figure this out and get my visas, drive across the border, be up in the French Alps, have a grand old weekend. And I was like, sweet, you don't need a visa, come along. So he gets to the resort and his brown skin almost turned white. You know, he was an absolute wreck. He's like, Vicky, you at least look European. Yeah, I look Indian. You know, you, you cannot make me drive through these borders. And it was again, it was this realization of, oh, I can't get through borders like this because if they do stop me, I look European. I have a much easier way of getting through than, than someone who's got a different color. And as we start to look for these examples, you know, I'm only, I'm only scratching the surface, but I think that's the conversation we need to have because it feels to me like we almost need to, and I know we're getting onto more of the societal beliefs and what we can do about this, but we almost need to have, like in golf, you have a handicap. It's almost like the whites need to have a handicap for, for a period of time because you can't just distribute everything and hope it's all going to be fair. I mean, they tried that in Zimbabwe and it didn't work out very well. It doesn't work that way. There aren't enough resources. Um, you know, if they're two, three million whites and there's eight million total population, it just doesn't work out in terms of the economics. But I think we can institute a degree of handicap that would we all be prepared to take a little bit of a, you know, a knock back to help everybody else. And I, I would hope, and I would certainly be in favor of, of saying yes to that. Don't know how we do it, how we institutionalize it, but I'm sure if we put our heads around it, we could come up with something. Yeah, Vicky, and I think the interesting part of that perspective is that, um, I think everybody will feel comfortable discussing this subject if it's not racism, if it's just a privilege that you don't have any influence over, right? It's, I didn't do anything to receive this privilege. It's just because of the color of my skin. I think we'll have a lot of allies from that perspective as opposed to um, racism, because almost everybody will say, I don't see color. I'm black. I see colors very well. I see <laughs> And when you, <laughs> I see very clearly. <laughs> and it's hard to tell if someone is racist or not. But white privilege, it, it's pretty clear, right? Whether it's white South African, white Nigerian, white Kenya, it doesn't matter. If you're white, you have that privilege. I think um, people will feel more comfortable having that conversation. Would you be comfortable discussing that yeah. with your circle of influence? Absolutely. And I am, it's, you know, it's a very powerful conversation because as you say, it's about creating safety. Because if we start attacking, you know, the minority that's running businesses, which are the white males still, they can just retreat into their bedrooms and, and run for the hills. And there's not going to be any change if we make them feel scared and unsafe and everything they say is going to be challenged. But if we can steer the conversation to a very real topic, which is about, hey, by the very nature of the skin you, you were born into, you, you do have certain privileges. Let's talk about those and try and uncover those. And that's when empathy kicks in because you start to realize, because most of us don't realize it. It's so, they're so small. They're so subtle. They're not these big, huge things that happen. But if you start to look in the day-to-day -day interactions, how things happen, whether it's the job interviews, whether it's the visas, whether it's, I'm sure if we go to shops or certain areas, you know, there'll be certain things, right? I'm sure if we go everywhere, airports, you name it, there'll be little things if we really started to discuss it then you start to go, oh, it, it is insidious. And I am one of the privileged ones just by the nature of my skin. I didn't choose the skin. You didn't choose the skin. But isn't it so weird that this is what's going on for something none of us chose? So, uh, so I'm really curious, given what you just said, Vicky, because uh, 
you know, as I've been thinking about this concept of privilege, white privilege, and what I generally find with the people that I interact with who, who benefit from that, um, there's a, yes, I think it's wrong. I'm going to read the book. I'm going to do book club. I'm going to talk about it till the cows come home, but stay away from my pocket. I don't really want to, I don't, I don't really want to lose anything in order. Like it's terrible. It's wrong. It's not how it should be, but only until you ask me to lose something so that someone else can have something. I'm curious, like you, you, you said something that was, I would be okay with that. How, how many people do you come across who you think share that view? Hmm. I think it's very difficult. It's a very difficult thing to believe in something and then let's say put 5% of your net worth at risk, at risk, or just give it away, whatever, redistribute it, whatever. I'm really curious as to how, I mean, you and I, we talk about compensation and, and dis- disincentives and incentives all day long. I'm curious, how would you incentivize something like that? I, I agree with you mm-hmm. that, that this is the right, well, it's one of the right strings to pull. I, my, my, my solution-oriented mind kicks in at that point. And it's like, how do you make that happen without massive amounts of civil unrest or just straight-up war? I mean, you know, like, how do you do that? Well, it also depends on the society you're in because uh, the US and a lot of Western Europe are individualistic societies. They're driven on the individual and they're driven on capitalism. And, I mean, we saw it with Obamacare and the nat- trying to institute a national health. It's, it's okay as long as it doesn't come out of my pocket. I want nothing to do with it, right? I don't want to give up a little something so the masses have something like that. And that's healthcare. You know, that, 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 that should be a universal right. Having lived in both the UK and the US, I was too young in South Africa to really understand what it was there. But, but certainly in the UK, I mean, it is, it is the masses first. And having been a beneficiary of the system through my husband for many years, through various illnesses, to see the goodness of it. And, you know, it would have bankrupted us if, if we had had to deal with his situation uh, privately. And it's a, it's a, it's a <laughs> how representative is my view? Uh, I'm sad to say, I think it's probably not. Mm. And when Francesca and I were talking on the weekend, you know, she, she was asking me, you know, how truly would you be, be willing to give up what you have, more than 5%? And I said, you know what, if, if I could guarantee an outcome of fairness, I'd give it all away. If, if you could guarantee me that outcome, that at the end of all this, it's going to be fair. Because what I have is not that meaningful to me. And I think for me, that's, I'm probably, and I'm not saying I don't enjoy what I have. I'm very fortunate to have what I have and I love it and I enjoy the life that I have. But if you were to guarantee me uh, a different outcome in terms of equality, I would give it up in a heartbeat, in a heartbeat to get that. And I don't know if that's because I feel so guilty about my past. <laughs> and I want to do good by, by, by the harm caused by my forefathers or what it is, or just my need and my love of, of general humanity. But anything I could do that would create fairness. And that's a challenge because the scale of the problem, you can't really promise that. Nobody can promise that, hey, you give it up and it's all fine because the dimensions are so complicated. So I think this idea of a handicap or a, you know, 5% tax or this or that, if we start small enough, it might actually get some legs. There'll be a lot of naysayers, but I think there'll be a lot of yaysayers as well. I, I agree with you, Vicky. Um, you know, I, 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 I can't even say for myself personally that um, if we want to switch, uh, make this switch in one shot, it's not sustainable. Um, it, it makes no sense to even just make this switch. 
and just say, okay, we're just all going this way and it's going to happen in the next one month. It's not going to be sustainable. This is a problem of 400, 500 years. So we should expect it's going to take time. And I mean, seriously, I'm thinking that you have to approach it from two ends, from the lower end, the little kids in terms of education, introduce you know, understanding what races and all those kind of good stuff, okay? Not bad stuff, good stuff. This is our history, okay? Then you start from the top, which may be, um, you know, a little bit of taxes there, but just a little bit that you can feel comfortable that, oh, I'm contributing to this solution. So, I mean, if you're a multimillionaire and they say, oh, you just need to give like 1% or point something percent, okay, to contribute to this, I think a lot of people will be willing to do that, to work towards a solution that is sustainable. But to think that you can easily just hit it right away, I don't think we'll be able to sustain it. So I completely agree with you, Vicky, on that perspective that it's the presentation, right, that's going to drive uh, the, the um, engagement, you know, for many of, um, you know, all the constituents, white, black, or brown, is really that uh, presentation that's going to drive that engagement. But, Vicky, I must ask you, so it's, it's, you mentioned that we have brown and black in South Africa. What's that relationship like? Is brown also being subdued, just like, were they subdued as well? I want Vips to understand. <laughs> Yeah, it's, Francesca, it's really embarrassing. I don't really know. I mean, I, I mean, ultimately, yes, because the categories were whites and non-whites. <laughs> so brown would be a non-white. So they would be subjugated to the same uh, rules and laws and beaches that were separate, restrooms that were separate, schools that were separate. Um, but the way the brown folks found their way had a very different outcome to the black folks in terms of their relative success. So I don't quite know how that all turned out. I don't know enough about that, that history, but I'm going to get curious about now that we dived into this topic. Vips may actually know a little bit more than I, than I know a little bit about it, not more through my family. I mean, I've got, I've got relatives in South Africa, um, but I, I don't know that I can speak for all Indians, but I, I can speak for, for, for my, I mean, to be honest, all of my family in South Africa have actually done really well. And, and I think it's, when I think about it, it I think a lot of it's to do with a couple of things. One, I, you know, at its core, a lot of my family, they didn't do their education in South Africa. They did their education in India and came, you know, almost as, uh, as immigrants effectively to work. So it's, so, you, I mean, the way to think about it is as, as, <laughs> as bad, if you like, from the perspective of the conversation we're having today as South Africa was, India was just 20 times worse. Like just, just in terms of straight up poverty, straight up, you know, like you'd just be lucky to live. Right. So if you, um, if you look at it from that point of view, this idea of going away was um, was a big deal. So if you were reasonably well-educated, but you weren't maybe maybe not quite as intelligent or lucky enough to win the lottery and come to the States or UK or whatever, many of them went to South Africa to work. And so, so I think the one thing I will say, at least about my family, is they were they kind of had no problem being outsiders. Like they, they just accepted that that was part of the... That was part of the contract of them going there in the first place, if you will, right? So they worked within that construct to just create small businesses. It's very, very much a, you know, small business centric mentality, you know, whether it's a, um, you know, a little t-shirt company or a little... Um, and and so South Africa has that as its main. It is a very entrepreneurial society because it was uh, all the sanctions from the rest of the world on South Africa. South Africans are very entrepreneurial. They're very scrappy. 
um, they, they'll make it. You know, if you, if you live in South Africa, whether you're white, black or brown, you are, you're tough. You know, you'll, you, you will make it. You, you can't survive there. If, if, you know, we say if you're a sissy, you won't make it. You have to be tough to get through South Africa. Um, there's no question about it. Now, what's also interesting, uh, you guys may not know this story, but there's a great movie called Searching for Sugar Man. And there was a uh, singer in the 60s, and his name was Rodriguez. And he had a very, he had a very uh, profound sound, a little bit like there was an element of Dylan to how we thought of him in South Africa. He wasn't Dylan, but he was, he was that famous to South Africans. And what had happened was a bootlegged copy of his album had made its way, a vinyl record had made its way into South Africa through some backpack who'd got there during the apartheid and sanctions. And, and so South Africa being completely separated from the world, from sports, from music, I mean, everything was cut off completely. There was no opportunity to be in the international stage for many, many decades. You know, even IBM pulled out from various times and Barclays and then the local version would try and sustain itself. So South Africans uh, assumed that uh, Rodriguez was as big as Dylan. You know, that was, he had a message that was very resonant with what South Africans were going through. And then when apartheid ended um, and the internet became a thing in the 90s and uh, one of the record store owners started to do a little bit of a search as to what happened to Rodriguez because there were these rumors that he'd blown himself up on stage, he set fire to himself, you know, as urban myths take off. And as he started to search for him, <laughs> what they found was this musician who'd grown up in Detroit in that era uh, had never made it, had never made it. So he was... I don't know, probably in his 60s, 50s, 60s, when they found him painting houses for a living, poor as anything. I mean, in South Africa, he's Dylan, you know, he's this huge thing. So South Africans brought him into South Africa to play a concert. And can you imagine somebody who's never made it, their music never took off, like any American or Brit will be like, who, who the hell's Rodriguez? But to South Africans, like my husband studied uh, music as one of his subjects in college, loves music, knows everything about music. And I was like, I was, it was like saying to him, you've never heard of the Beatles? Like, I, I just could not understand. It was that part of my DNA. And when I watched this movie, I was like, oh, so the guy comes down to South Africa and he's playing a huge stadium, huge stadium, like Dodger Stadium, filled with South Africans who are like, oh, our hero. And he's never played before an audience. I mean, imagine the love wow. that he felt. But that shows yeah. the segregation, not only in the country, but in terms yeah. of the world yeah. stage and, and how South Africans grew up. So there's this huge, I think from all colors and shapes and sizes, this huge shame and guilt and isolation and, and all the characteristics that are not helpful that go along with that. And a huge amount of healing, you know, for everybody who's come from that, that environment on the one side. And then on the other side, it's the most beautiful country. You know, the game parks, a lot of the coast is like California, the beaches, the food is amazing, lots of natural rich resources, diamonds and gold uh, in its time. Most beautiful country. Um, so entrepreneurial, you can really make it if you've got, you know, your wits about you. But it comes with this baggage and this, this, this shame and this helplessness and this, and then the practical fear of I'm actually going to be safe because of all the hatred you know, for all the decades of living like that. Very, very confusing yeah. uh, place. And it's probably, probably about 10 years ago where I, I started to feel comfortable owning that actually I'm a South African and I'm proud to be a South African um, and willing to talk about it because there was a long period where I was like, oh, you know, I'm kind of global, I'm not anything, I don't really want to be attached. But now I'm like, no, I am South African. 
Uh, yes, I have a British passport and an American passport. I'm a South African at its core, and I'm proud to be. And that feels really good to be able to say that at last. That's awesome. Can I switch you to professional beliefs for a second? So, I mean, especially, you know, I, I know, I mean, we've, we've got so much history together. I know you've spent a tremendous amount of time, though, in the what I'll call the people functions, whether it's HR, recruitment, talent, um, organizational design and effectiveness. And I'm really curious, like, where, where do you see um, the biases, if you like, within those systems that are that have either worked for you or you've seen work against, you know, black people or brown people or whatever. Don't don't mention the company though, because otherwise we'll get we'll get sued. <laughs> well, it's interesting because with my first the place where my mind went to first when you mentioned that is in those talent and HR functions. You often do see a lot of um, black and brown leaders. Uh, in HR functions, um, running different roles and and things like that, and it's it's always made me curious about that. It's it's a little bit like HR functions have, tend to have a lot more women than they do men as well. So what I've seen in organisations is there are certain functions that seem to attract or welcome in probably more more than attract um, folks of different colours than others. So I work a lot in technology functions because the early years of my career were in technology with VIPS. Um, and that tends to attract a very large Indian population. You don't have that many blacks. So a lot of brown folks in, in, in technology organizations, and that creates, I actually did my, my master's dissertation on, on the cultural beliefs of, of technology Indian workers in the US versus India, because I was so sick and tired of them being deferential to the white authority figure when they are so good. They are so good, but there's something about when push comes to shove, they'll be deferential. And when we dug into it, it was all about their beliefs. You know, they've been grown up to be humble to someone more senior or to someone um, who has a title. And even if they are a VP in this new company, they'll still be more deferential because of their caste system beliefs. They don't even realize it. So we've had to re, that little group that I worked with, we had to reestablish our definitions and norms around humbleness. And that was in the US, yeah, you have to speak out because otherwise you're not being humble but you have to do it without an ego. So I've definitely seen it from that perspective of, um, of, of that. And, and when I look at a lot of the leadership positions, you know, a lot of it is, uh, you know, still white, white authority figures, a lot of males, but there are some females. You know, one of the organizations I work with is predominantly, you know, white leadership team, a white male uh, leadership team who think they're quite diverse. <laughs> Which is, which is different ironic. color blazers. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's ironic, and it's um, it's a it's it's a real challenge because you can try and target it via recruitment um, and and put quotas like South Africa went down the affirmative action and only so many people can be white; the rest have to be black and colored and Indian. Um, and you sometimes have to start like that just to get the the skewing the skewing mm. right. But you also, you also can't lose that the person has to have the skills to do the job. Um, so, you know, my dad watched, watched uh, the guy who used to do the security and watch cars become the CEO when he was um, at the Johannesburg City Council. And the guy was still checking cars, <laughs> even though he was the CEO, because that, that was his content power. Um, and, you know, credit to my dad, you know, there was no hatred or resistance or anything like that. He knew that was necessary for healing. But 
it's that balance of, you know, what do you do to try and right the wrongs of the past? And what do you do to make sure we have the skills? And it's, it's, that, it's that really tricky balance to get right. And, and who's overseeing all that? Who's making sure that it all happens from a system perspective? And, and that's where it gets tricky because leaning one way or the other is not helpful. But there's, we definitely have to go a little bit more um, towards the helping to get it right or it's never really going to change. So you talked about, you talked about the brown attraction on the, on the technology side. Do you see any from the perspective of black or certain roles that seem to always go to white people or anything like that? Do you, do you any patterns that you see from your work? Patterns tend to be, uh, if it's not Indian, in the more scientific R&D technology, it tends to be white. Um, I tend to see that. And again, don't know if it's a skill set or not welcomed in or some kind of combination, but I see a lot of that. And certainly as you start to get into upper management, leadership, that's where there's a vast difference. It's, it's, it's very milky white, very, very, very milky white. There's usually a token black, and that's what it feels like. And they're usually really good, but it feels like a token black. You know, it doesn't feel, it's not that they don't have the skills, they're really good, but it's, it, it feels to everybody else when you're looking at the makeup that it's, and they often don't feel like they have a voice because if they try and speak up from their perspective, they're, they're alone. There's no one to share their perspective. So they, they're having to almost paint themselves white, from what I can see, to, to fit in as opposed to being able to be themselves and shift the agenda, being truly welcomed in. So they, they, they invited to come to the dance, but they're not being asked to dance. <laughs> like, like you sit out there and you know, have your drink and sit on the chairs, you're here, but you, we don't really want you dancing with us. Mm, you just stay over there. That's what it feels like to me in a lot of the cases, sadly. And Vicky, you know, uh, I think it must have been early 90s. Um, affirmative action was also introduced here in the U.S. Um, so what happened was, I was with um, an MNC that time. So what happened was uh, to meet the quotas, so they'll bring, you know, minorities in, but they bring them in to be admin assistants, to be clerks. So when you count, you meet the quotas, right? But... Is that what you really want? So that was how it got scrapped because it wasn't working. It's not just to have the numbers, it's the quality of what you're having. And um, there's no doubt, um, I'm not for affirmative action, absolutely not. But my position is there are absolutely highly qualified black, brown, or any color in between that can operate at this level. It has to be win-win when you have that. Um, I was uh, sharing with someone, I think about a week or two ago, I said that when I sit um, in, the, uh, in a conference room with executives, they're all white. I see all white. I never see black. And if they say, oh, let's interview people. When I see black, it doesn't fit because it doesn't fit what my eyes is accustomed to seeing that mm. fits in that position. And that's me, a black person. Mm. I've been really honest with you guys here. Mm. So mm. It, it's going to require a big shift. If I'm seeing white for certain roles, how do I expect you, Vicky, to view it? It takes a big shift to begin to say, okay, it's not about what I'm used to, what I'm comfortable doing. It's about really thinking about what's best for this position. In fact, it may also be like, I want something different from what I'm used to. Maybe we can start from this, something different from what I'm used to. That might be the way to do it. And I'm sure, Vips, even at your level, um, if you sit with executives, I don't know how many minorities you see there, especially when you, you are a minority. You just feel like, oh, I fit in here. We are all the same color. 
You're not even seeing yourself as brown or black. We are all kind of what I'm seeing. All of us are white, even though you're brown, even though I'm black. Because you used to seeing this, this. I mean, am I making sense? Are you guys? No, you're you're, you're making me? you're making perfect sense. You know, as you were talking, I, you know, you you, you kind of challenged me to think a little bit, and and uh, I think it's really interesting. Your question's thrown up a really interesting question in my mind, which is we have tried. I mean, I, I spoke at the uh, National Minorities Group. I've forgotten the name of the. I've forgotten the right acronym, Vicky. You can probably fill me in. But there's a National Minorities Group. We went and spoke in San Diego. Um, mm. uh, last year, Vicky and I did an event, I think in Denver as well for the same group. And, and it's really interesting, like from our world, now this is purely from a think shift world point of view, when we've tried to cultivate demand in that community, and when I, by that, I mean just my minority community, I'm not necessarily black. It's almost like they don't really see the value in it yet. So it's not a very fertile soil from a business point of view. So either it's because our messaging is wrong, right? Like, Whatever we're saying, like you, what you just said, they don't fit, right? When you're in that boardroom. So either there's something wrong with our messaging, which I, I don't know, maybe. I'm, I'm having a hard time thinking that's true because our message is quite an optimistic and positive message. Um, but it's possible. Um, but I think maybe, maybe there's something like if you've had like, you know, generations and generations of white privilege, right? Then you've just, you've kind of got to a place now where, where, you kind of just inherently higher up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And therefore, what we do is something that you're prepared to spend serious money on. Yeah? And it almost feels like, you know, you're ready for dessert, therefore I'm ready for dessert. But if you're still trying to figure out how to have a main course, then offering someone chocolate cake is really not a good idea, right? Because they're still hungry, right? <laughs> and and, I, and, I, and it's, a, it's, a really, it's really interesting because I have this challenge all the time because I, you know, I say to myself, God, you know, there's no getting away from the fact that ThinkShift is a, is a luxury good, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the, the business itself, what Vicky does for a living, what I do for a living, I mean, it's, it's a luxury good. Now, we try to give 50% of our work to educational nonprofits because that's how we think we can change the world. But there's a reason why when businesses are truly struggling and losing serious amounts of money, we will probably see our budgets cut. Um, mm -hmm. that's, but, it, but it's very interesting when you layer the race lens on top of that because... You know, for me, it's quite frustrating because I want to work more with minority leaders, but there's no effective demand that I experience from minority leaders, either because, I don't know, I, it, to me, it's some combination of I'm not sure I need it or I'm good enough to do it myself or, or I, maybe I, I can't spend money on this because I've got to worry about other things or I, there's something about that equation that, let me that, give you the let me give you the winning approach, Vips. Oh, Are you love interested? It. Okay, you're gonna need a black person. We have one. Okay, so let that black person lead the charge, and that black person is going to speak the language that the black leaders understand. There's a separate language that you need to speak. That's one. Number two. It's not about you now, Vips. It's about Vicky, but. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can tell Vicky what she needs to do. That works too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but we're asking Vicky questions. Okay. So, so anyway, let me just quickly give you the second one. So the first one is to have the right face, you know, with the right message and all that. But the second thing is you have to remember, um, you did say it, um, think shift is a luxurious good. Very, very much so. Now, how many blacks are in that position to be able to afford 
that kind of goods. Not that many. So maybe you need to think about discounting it mm -hmm. to get in. So when you discount it to get in, you have your foot in the door, then you begin to cultivate sure. what you already have. And then the message is going around in that circle that, oh my goodness, this is why I'm making it. This is why my organization is doing these things because... Vicky, are you there? I am. <laughs> okay, so it's not my end. No, it was really good. Yeah, it was really good. <laughs> we lost her mid-sentence. <laughs> Can you hear me? Yeah, you're back. The beauty of technology. Don't you like it? You were, you were, you were on such a roll there. <laughs> You was like, and what you got to do, Vips, is bang, bang. And then it just went silent. It's like, she's going to think I cut her off. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, jeez. No, no, you're right. No, you're, you're right. You're right about the, um, you're, you're right about the discounting. And we, we, you know, honestly, we've tried that. I'll tell you what we haven't tried, though, is we, we, we normally have the conversation about price at the end. We don't have the conversation about price at the beginning. And I think what that might do is that might disincentivize people from even continuing with the conversation because they think they probably won't be able to afford it. But that's a, that's a whole different Absolutely. conversation. This can, yeah. can I tell you something funny? What I thought Francesca was going to say when she was going to tell us what we needed to do was that you're just too white, my friend. Yeah, I, I, thought, I thought she was going to say that. I thought she was going to say that. And I was trying to... I, 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 put my, I put my vest on for that. I was waiting for it. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a thought you that came so to me. I was, like, dude, <laughs> yeah, I was like, dude, you're too white. I know you've got a brown skin, but you're too white. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but you guys, you guys are in such a fantastic position, right? So you have, you have James, you have Vicky. Then you need the third V. I don't know whether it's Victor, whoever you're going to need there. So you need that third V to complement you. So that when you go out, you have the full package and then it needs to be presented from that perspective. Um, and then, you know, make sure the, well, uh, we the could, numbers work right. We could, we could rename Jennifer, Benifer, and then you'd be the three Vs. Well, I was going to say, we could have a little F between the two Vs. We could have a little Francesca between Vips and Vicky. FVV. It's got the same, it's got, got, a similar, it's got a similar phonetic sound to it. Right. Yeah, but, but I mean, seriously, Vicky, I think that was a really interesting question that Vips raised about your clients, those executives. How are they feeling comfortable about this, um, this new, you know, um, situation we faced with? Are they comfortable having these discussions with you? No, no, I, no, I'm forcing them to have them, but they're very, very uncomfortable. It's not a conversation they want to have. You know, I have been... Um, strongly encouraging uh, them to have their, their coffee conversations, their town halls, leaning in, whether it was around Juneteenth or the social unrest or the continuing conversations around whatever it might be. Uh, because most of them have never had to have these conversations. And in fact, HR would tell them not to go there. You know, it was a legal risk up until now. So they don't have the skill. They're like third graders. They don't know how to have these conversations. And they don't want to have these conversations because they don't really know their own views. And there's, they've got a, probably some sense of guilt around it, too. And it just feels like I don't, don't really want to go near this whole conversation at all. But to their credit, every single one that I've pushed to have these conversations has leaned in and the staff have opened up and it's been very, very well received. Uh, now, whether, you know, Vips and I are working with a lot of organizations on, on the whole uh, race edition um, of our Shift Up program of who's really serious for this long term conversation around 
the foundations and the leadership decisions and the challenges around, are you prepared to put real dollars to this and decide, is this really an efficiency agenda or is there the human agenda? And the two come at a, at a cost. They, they're not equal and we've got to balance it out. And it's only when we see people willing to do more than just a bit of unconscious bias and a bit of hiring will we really start to see the needle. And, and that'll be interesting to see how many are going to give it teeth other than that and a bit of have a, you know, somebody lead the diversity, quality and inclusion efforts, give them a title and, and so be it. Because that's, to me, that's, it's a start, but it's not, it's, it's not where we need to go. Vicky, uh, Vips, it's a sustainability agenda. You have to go in from that perspective. That's what it is. Um, it, it's, not, it's not sufficient. We're just talking about, oh, you know, affirmative action or whatever this is. To be able to sustain this organization going into the future, this is what it's all about. It's going to require all the different consequences working together. So that, that's really my perspective. Uh, you're completely right, and that's how we framed. That's, com that's how we framed. We're, we're calling it Shift Up for a Fabulous World. So we've... We've, fra we've phrased it from, you know, from the perspective of the changes we want to see in the world as a value judgment. Um, and this is the race edition of that. Um, but yeah, that's certainly something we should talk about. Vicky, I, I want to get back to giving you the closing remarks. So I, I'm going to do what you always do to me and you're going to hate it. Um, <laughs> so, so, all right. So on the subject at hand here, you could do three things. If you could wave your magic wand and do three things, what would they be? to address this from the perspective of a white person who you said for yourself experienced all sorts of privilege through through the color of I think what did you call yourself like a milky pasty white. skin milky white skin I can't remember what you just said it was it was milky white is better than pasty skin okay yes. milky white let's go with milky white <laughs> like your tea you like your tea milky white as exactly well. yeah. and I'm attributing that to Francesca that's what she uh, christened me as is milky white so uh, that's a lot more pleasant than pasty skin <laughs> so my magic wand mm, that's a great question Bibs. I should have seen this one coming mm, yes you should have <laughs> <laughs> So the first is, um, and those black listeners listening to that are not going to enjoy this, but for me it's really important. We have to create safety and safe agreements because if those in power that are a lot of the white majority males do not feel safe and they scamper back into their bedrooms, literally, then nothing's going to change. You know, this is going to be a good conversation for a few months, but it's going to fizzle out. A few protests, a few conversations, and it'll fizzle out. Because change only happens when each person feels, and if they don't feel safe, they're not going to feel anything. They're just going to feel more guilt and more shame, and nothing's really going to change. So to me, wish number one is that uh, we can come at this from the perspective of uh, true safety uh, and go at it from there. And that's, that's a tough one. And, you know, there's a Mandela quote, if you want to make peace with your enemy, you have to work with your enemy. Then he becomes your partner. So mm -hmm. that's the first one. Man, I wish he was around today to lead us through all of this uh, in a big way. Um, the second would be, I really like this idea of this handicap, you know, this white privilege handicap. And whether that's a, you know, a, a tax, whether that's a, hey, in organizations, uh, there's certain things we do differently um, for, for folks that have a milky white skin um, than others. We'd have to work exactly through what that really looks like. But I, I think there has to be something that, that allows others to catch up uh, in, a, in, in these small micro day-to-day -day ways that we aren't even conscious of that happens. 
<sighs> and then my genie, my third wish. My third wish would be um, for the children, for the children to have the level of education where they're not ashamed of their past, whether they are milky white or chocolate brown or luxurious black, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and they can just be themselves. And as we heard from Francesca, you know, wear their hair as, as natural hair and not have to try and conform to you know, the white image of whatever it might be. And they can grow up as innocent, pure little children, uh, no matter what their skin color, and they get treasured for it and valued for it and recognized for it. You know, I'm going to end on a funny, on a funny note where when I was living in London, before every vacation, and we used to get out of there a lot because the weather was so shitty, and go somewhere sunny many times. You know, since we could. came to the States, they've had great weather every summer. I know, you know that, right? I know. It's global warming, yep. my friend. Yep, I know. <laughs> I won't take it personally. <laughs> they have had great summers. It's, yeah, we won't go there. Anyway, so I used to get a spray tan before my, my trips. I wasn't as milky white. I'd at least have a bit of color when I went on the beach. And... A good uh, colleague and friend of ours, Prague, and I were working at a client together, and he used to give me a lift home sometimes. And I asked him to drop me off at the spray tan booth. And he said to me, what are you talking about? So I had to describe <laughs> what I do and why I do it. I'm like, you wouldn't have a clue. You've got this lovely brown skin. <laughs> you don't know what it's like to be a milky white sitting on a beach. <laughs> White, white, fat and flab is not a good look. Oh, that's so cool. You know, Francesca, you don't know Prague, but if you know Prague, Prague would have been, he's one of these guys, when he said that, he was like, I just, I just cannot understand. He would not compute in his mind. Um, it's, it's very funny when you think of the individual himself. So. Okay, Vicky, th thanks so much. Um, you know, we're kind of coming up on time and uh, it was really, it was really interesting actually to hear your perspectives on this and, uh, um, you know, I, I, I look forward to continuing this conversation in the days, weeks, hours, months, years um, ahead. And, and we'll find our own small ways um, to create those moments on the ground every day, I'm sure. Um, Francesca, any closing thoughts? Sure. Um, first, I want to say thank you to uh, Vips and Vicky and the whole thing shift. The reason why I say that is because I believe you have taken a big risk uh, in leading this conversation. Of course, your clients are hearing. Many of them are not comfortable with the subject. Many of them are not um, interested in the subject. And many of them don't even want to talk about it. But you also have some clients that just need a way to jumpstart the conversation. And you've done that. So I want to say thank you. I also want to thank you on behalf of black, brown, and white, okay, all humanity. I want to thank you on behalf of all humanity because what you've done is what every single one of us should be doing. Take the risk for what's right. As a matter of fact, Vips, this is meta. This is meta thinking. Doing what you feel is absolutely right. That's what you put into practice. So you don't even need any example of matter thinking anymore. This is it. You've done it. You believe it's important. You believe it needs to be done. You're taking the chance. This is what it's all about. So you've helped me out a lot to get out of my shell 
Okay? You've really helped me out. I mean, can you ever imagine me, you know, on a podcast, you know, talking to you guys about ah, race? Oh, my gosh, black, white. Ooh, I would never go there. Wow, and you're doing your own podcast now. You know, and that's the thing. I'm like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe this. This is what you do. This is what your meta thinking does to people. It makes them to get out of their shell. <laughs> You've gone again. You've gone again. <laughs> I can't this. I, I, well, well, the, I the, good, the good thing is you got to, it gets us out of our shells. You actually got to a really good Yeah, you said, it, you said it gets us out of our shell and then oh, you died. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's horrible. I was just getting them to go and listen to those episodes on the matter thinking and all that. Because honestly, for me, it's helped me a lot. I've listened several times to it. So it's not a one time. So you're a glutton for punishment. You've listened many times. <laughs> <laughs> I do, because you can't absorb it all in one sitting. It's pretty deep. It's very deep. You know? Yeah. So, so anyway, that's what I was, you know, getting at, um, that... You know, this, this is matter in practice. This is it. So I want to thank you guys uh, for, for what you, you're doing, what you've done. And um, it's, it's phenomenal. Just, no, it's just, just a start. It, we're, we're just starting. It's a, it's, a, it's a journey that never ends. So um, I think with, without you know, further ado, thank you for a great episode. That was, I had a really good time with that one. And Brem, Brem my nephew, is going to have a fantastic time editing this one <laughs> while maintaining the jokes and, uh, and keeping everything was... square. I was thinking for the series, he should have a little bloopers podcast. Oh, I know. He, he, he probably could do. We should probably tell him, you know, he has to make a bloopers podcast. Oh, um, but no, gosh. seriously, thank you very much. And I really look forward to our, our, our next in this series. And, um, and without that, everyone, be fabulous. Be fabulous.